Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by ESPN. Saturdays are for college football, apparently, and Saturday, December 29th is the Saturday of all Saturdays. It's the college football playoff. Who's playing? Great question. It's Alabama versus Oklahoma and Notre Dame versus Clemson. Those are all colleges, by the way, and they've got really good football teams. And they'll all be competing for the national championship. It's on ESPN, and it's streaming live on the ESPN app. Watch it, but only after you've listened to this season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held. Believe me, it'll be a whole new experience. Welcome back to Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger, and in our last episode, I am diving into the cultures of ballet, figure skating, and gymnastics. These are the sports with the most rigorous physical and psychological training regimes, and yet they're often dismissed because the athletes are young women in leotards and tutus with big smiles and lots of makeup and sparkles. These athletes are constantly striving for perfection, and yet there's a real lack of respect for them. So what does that say about how our culture treats young women? To get some answers, I talked to award-winning sports journalist Joan Ryan and American Ballet Theater's principal dancer, Isabella Boylston. Joan Ryan wrote Little Girls in Pretty Boxes in 1996, and I read the book in 2000, and it changed my life. It's an investigative report into the making and breaking of elite gymnasts and figure skaters. Now, I was a competitive figure skater at the time, and I was waking up at 4 a.m. for practice before heading to school. Then I had practice after school and every Saturday. But I loved skating. I loved competing. I loved the dresses. I loved the spins. I loved the speed. But then I read Joan's book. I read it the summer going into my freshman year of high school, and it was actually on my summer reading list for my Catholic all-girls high school, which, looking back, was a little aggressive. I mean, if the book wasn't on your summer reading list, here's how it's described on Amazon. A disturbing look that exposes the tarnish beneath Olympic gold with heartbreaking stories of the physical and psychological abuse suffered by countless young girls driven to achieve Olympic medals. 16-page photo insert included. I devoured this book, and after reading it, I was like, this. I ended up leaving figure skating in part because of Joan's book, but also because my feet grew out of my skates and my hips grew too big to jump. Had I not had Joan's book to help me intellectualize what was happening, I would have hit rock bottom. But I didn't. Did you stay in sports, though? I did, yeah. I played basketball in high school and softball in high school, and I also swam in high school, and I swam in college. Oh, wow. That's Joan. My name is Joan Ryan, and I am an author. I'm working on my fifth book now. I was a journalist for, I guess I'm still a journalist, journalist for a million years. And I just finished my 11th season as the media consultant for the San Francisco Giants. Joan was one of the first female sports columnists in the country. She has 13 Associated Press Sports Editors Awards, and Little Girls and Pretty Boxes was named Top 100 Sports Books of All Time by Sports Illustrated. What made you want to write Little Girls and Pretty Boxes back then? 
then? What what was the impetus to, to write it? I was a sports columnist at the time for the San Francisco Examiner. And she had a question. And the question was, what does this elite, elite level training and pressure do to a body that is still developing and a psyche that is still developing? Are there consequences to that? And then I distilled it down to figure skating and gymnastics for the book little girls in pretty boxes. And as I got deeper into it, you know, at least gymnastics was even worse than I thought. And why distill it down to those two sports? Well, they were both very popular in their respective Olympics, the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. And I was also really interested in this whole pixie fairy princess aspect to both these sports. These girls and young women are incredible athletes. They were among the best athletes I'd ever covered. And yet it was diminished in some ways by the sparkles in their hair and their ponytail and their makeup and the obedient, cute little smile. And I thought, God, you know, there's men never have to go through that. You know, how they look and how they dress doesn't really matter. And that interests me too, as I took it on as a book project, because it was such a reflection of our culture. And that's why it's called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes. It it reminded me of, you know, sort of that pop-up ballerina that so many of us had in our first jewelry box. When we opened it up, there was this little ballerina who spun around. And when we closed it, she just went back in the box until we opened it again. And sort of every four years, we opened that box and they spun around and nobody ever paid attention to what was happening when we weren't watching them in the Olympics. And what was happening when we weren't watching them in the Olympics? What was going on inside those gyms was this, the weirdest subculture that I've ever sort of immersed myself in. And I've covered boxing. (laughs) I've covered football. And what happens, and this was fascinating to me, and it, and it was so marked in gymnastics more so than in figure skating. You go into these gyms and you watch the parents, it's usually the mothers, watching practice and the coaches down there. And these little, I mean, they do look like little girls, no matter how old they are, they look like little girls. And their coaches are barking at them and these girls are training with their broken wrists and fractures up and down their spine and they're throwing up in the bathroom and they have eating disorders and the parents are pushing them and mortgaging their homes so they can move to Houston to train with the great Bella Caroli. Now, if you don't know Bella Caroli, he was the former Olympic head coach, and he's known for promoting strict diets and grueling training sessions so that his gymnasts have a certain weight and body type. And so when I sat with these parents, I would ask them, especially in retrospect, these parents, and they said, yeah, I was an insane person. I said, well, why? How does that happen? And they would say, well, you step into this culture that you're not familiar with. You know, the mothers weren't gymnasts. And you kind of look around you to sort of get a sense of how you're supposed to behave. What's the expectations here? And the parents weren't saying anything when the coaches were calling their daughters fat and lazy and stupid and telling them, well, you you can't go to school. You've got to be homeschooled or you can go go to school for two hours a day. And the parents then would just go along with it. It's the frog in the pot on the stovetop that the abnormal becomes normal. So as a parent, you can say, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not mother of the year, but I'm not as bad as this one next to me. She's way worse. She hits her kids. I don't hit my kid. Joan felt like the atmosphere was cultish. You're isolated. The standards for self-protection and parenting go by the wayside. And there's little accountability. You kind of understand how 
cults work and how people can get brainwashed, really, and go along with what to outsiders is clearly abusive. And you mentioned earlier that everyone looked like a little girl. What role does that kind of play in how we think about young women? Just like you really need to be tall to be a basketball player, you know, you really need to be tiny to be at the highest level of gymnastics because of the demands of the skills that you have to perform. So you want the body of basically a a, a young boy. You basically, if, if you can, be shaped like a bullet and have as much musculature to weight as you possibly can to throw yourself into the air, spin around. Having the body of a young boy while still being cute and feminine is hard, but it plays an important role in how we culturally value these athletes. They're gender normative, they aren't threatening to men in power, we at home don't have to wonder if they're gay. Even though it's silly to think that a woman who's small, cute, and feminine couldn't be gay, it's only very recently that we've embraced female athletes who don't fit this model. We weren't comfortable with female athletes. Team sports, you know, basketball players and softball players and even soccer players. But boy, did we love our figure skaters and our gymnasts. Those were the athletes, the elite athletes, that we could just embrace and not worry, oh my God, is she a lesbian? Oh my God, is she in a relationship? Oh my God, you know, she looks too much like a man. It was so clear that these were not just females, but really feminine females. The glitter, the bows, the dresses made it okay to be an athlete because it was tempered with the femininity. Exactly. And the figure skating, it's times 10. You know, the costumes they were wearing and, you know, really their hair. And I mean, their costumes counted toward their score. Elegance counted toward their score. So it was showbiz, too. It was a show as much as it was a competition. It is gorgeous to watch, but they're not appreciated for simply their athletics. They had to put all of this on top of the athletics to make it I think, palatable to a general audience. Because it is so palatable. And and maybe that's the reason why the abuse goes so overlooked, because it's so pretty. How could that be abusive? It's so pretty. I know. But people couldn't believe it, that behind these pixies could possibly be coaches that were treating them the way they were being treated. Why did they have those tiny bodies? Well, they didn't eat. They overexercised. How could they do these amazing moves at such a young age? Well, it was because they started when they're nine or six or whatever, and they don't go to school and they're training eight hours a day, seven days a week. When we see those six gymnasts every four years step out onto that floor, what we don't see are the hundreds, maybe thousands of bodies, you know, stacked up along the path of the ones that didn't make it and the price that they paid and the price that, you know, we paid as a country to get those six. There's a a lot of broken girls and broken women to get those six. Part of it is what drives this is what drives everything, you know, is is money. How do the coaches make their living by producing a top elite gymnast, right? And their job, and Bella Caroli would say this right out loud, he'd say, my job is to produce champions. That's my job. That's the product I manufacture. It's not to produce a healthy, well-adjusted young woman. Not his job. That's the parent's job. Now, I think that's bullshit. 
<laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. If you're coaching children, it is your responsibility to watch out for their safety and their well-being. And that's part of USA Gymnastics' problem. They don't acknowledge, they don't make accommodations for the fact that I think it's like 90% of USA Gymnastics athletes are children. And there's nothing in their charter, nothing in their rules that acknowledge that. Little Girls in Pretty Boxes was reissued in 2018 with a new forward by Olympic gymnast Jamie Dancher. She was one of the first athletes to report abuse by Dr. Larry Nasser. The book has become an important resource for those who are looking to heal from abuse and understand how historically toxic the cultures of these sports are. Were you surprised when the Nasser case came forward? What was going through your head? Really, my reaction was just fury, absolute fury. I just was like, God, they knew. They knew this was an abusive culture. If you have a culture that not only allows abuse, but is built on it, that's how they produce these athletes. I mean, what better environment for a pedophile to come in? And for gymnastics, it makes so much sense because here's how it works. And here's why Nasser was able to get away with this. In gymnastics, what a girl has to do to succeed she has to deny her own reality and adopt her coach's reality, her parents' reality, but mostly the coach's reality and USA Gymnastics' reality. So what does this mean? This means that when she's injured, her coach tells her, you're not injured. Get back up on the beam. When she says she's hungry, you're hungry. You eat too much. When she's tired, oh, you're just lazy and you're fat and lazy. Just, just get out there and do your work or leave the gym. We don't want you here. So she's learned that, number one, what she thinks is true isn't true. And if she still believes it's true, she knows nobody's going to listen to her. It gets dismissed. And she is so accustomed to every kind of insult to her body that when this very trusted doctor who has the stamp of approval of your gymnastics federation and is your friend, he's the one who commiserates with you on how awful your coach is, et cetera, et cetera, and he's sexually molesting you but tells you it's a medical treatment, you believe him. Why wouldn't you believe him? And so we talk about pedophiles grooming. Oh, my gosh. The whole gymnastics culture groomed these girls to end up being sexually abused. What was so infuriating and, and so stark to me was how little it had changed. The fact that, you know, in 2018, that young women are still following the same model that it was more than two decades ago is really disheartening and really disconcerting and I think should make us all step back and look not just at gymnastics, but how far have we come. But how did this physical and psychological training become so enmeshed in figure skating and gymnastics? Well, it's because they're two of only a handful of sports that are judged. And when a judge's score is used to determine whether you win or lose, perfection becomes the goal. I think when we're talking about perfection of female athletes, I think it is those sports that are judged rather than timed or scored. You know, it's sort of like the reality show before there was a reality show. You know, that you have, you know, that panel of judges and saying that you're good at this, you're terrible at that. And in figure skating, as as you know, these judges know these skaters very, very well. And the skaters will solicit their opinions and their coaches will solicit their opinions to please the judges. I mean, what sport does that? 
So it isn't just how well you do on the ice on that particular day. It's all the politics that go with it and that you're representing figure skating the way the judges want you to represent figure skating. And in gymnastics, you know, is it the same? I don't think it's quite the same because gymnastics is so clearly athletic, but there are still body types that are much more pleasing to the judges than other body types. How pretty you are, how much you smile, all of those things matter in both those sports and in particular figure skating. Those kinds of things just go with the territory. I mean, it's just part of those two sports. So I think there's a there's a self-selection of girls who are very, very driven to succeed in that kind of activity. Because if you don't, you're going to be out pretty soon. Generally, these girls, what I found in figure skating and in gymnastics. They were perfectionists. They had high, high, high expectations of themselves. They wanted the perfect body. They wanted the perfect look. They had to do the perfect skill, land it perfectly. Their arm angle had to be absolutely perfect. So it takes a certain type to do that. So you have this sort of melding of a characteristic that when it's exploited and warped in the way that the gymnastics community and to a certain extent figure skating does, you take this passion that these girls have for this sport and their drive for this sport and you turn it into something that is really ugly and destructive. I think anyone who's made it this far in ballet is a perfectionist. And it's that thing that you're always striving for a level of perfection that's always out of reach. So no matter how much closer you, I mean, you can't get any closer. It's like you get better and then you're, what you're reaching for is even further away. That's Isabella Boylston. She's a professional ballerina. In fact, she's one of the best in the world. And I talked with her about the world of ballet and why she thinks it's not a toxic environment for her contrary to popular belief. So I am from Ketchum, Idaho. It's where the Sun Valley Ski Resort is. Really small town. And how she got her start plays an important role in that story. My parents thought it would be good for me to do as many activities as possible. My dad was actually is a drummer. Such a big part of why I love dancing is because I love music. And so I think maybe that was the first thing. I think I had a natural sense of rhythm and I loved the movement and just getting to express yourself like the creative side of it as a kid yeah obviously when you know you're that little it wasn't serious at all it was just fun your dad was a drummer and your mom was she's um she has her master's in electrical electrical engineering (laughs) she's a computer programmer she's from sweden and they met on a ski lift when she was on a business trip my dad was basically like a ski bum and drummer (laughs) worked in construction. Then I guess me and my brother came along. We lived in a trailer in Ketchum. And yeah, it was a very like free spirited upbringing, I would say. So the turning point for me was when I was 11, I was encouraged by my teacher to audition for this summer intensive program, which is basically ballet boot camp for like six weeks. And serious ballet students spend their summer doing that. So she encouraged me to audition. And the program was run by these Russians in Washington, D.C. So I went to the audition and I was so bad, like so much worse than everyone in the in the class. I remember doing this one step called a promenade and I like had never done it before and I 
couldn't do it and I literally just got stuck like facing the back of the room and I couldn't move and the teacher came and just like picked me up and faced me back the right way and I thought I totally bombed it but then I guess they saw something in me and I got a scholarship and then ended up going to that program and then by the end of six weeks I had just improved so much and I think that was an intoxicating feeling just to feel like for the first time I was the best one in my class so after that I became a lot more serious about my training and I convinced my parents to let me go to the school that was like an hour away and I would hop on the bus and go there and and at, at that point I think all my friendships were pretty much concentrated within the ballet because it was such a time commitment I felt like just such a loner at school I remember like my first year of high school I would eat lunch by myself in the bathroom it was so sad I just felt very isolated I think because I was so serious about this one thing and I felt like most of my friends at school couldn't really understand it I don't know my parents were like getting divorced at the time so that was rough but they never wavered in their support of me following whatever my dream was I think I had really supportive teachers like I was always identified by my teachers as I think having talent for Mm -hmm. this and so I remember I had this one teacher she was Estonian and she would like chain smoke Inge but she was an amazing teacher and she offered to give me private lessons I think basically like for free because it was already so expensive for me to be attending this school and she volunteered her time and like gave me private lessons and coached me for this ballet competition that I did called Youth America Grand Prix I feel like looking back through my training and my career I've always had really incredible female mentors who were always going out of their way to like push me and help me is that unique do you feel like a lot of young dancers have that experience I think maybe it is unique I think part of it is just there is a lot of favoritism I think that's in any competitive sport or art like the teacher identifies the students that are more exceptional or maybe more hardworking. Mm. and then I think it's natural that they'll like maybe put more energy into those students. So I think I definitely benefited from a lot of preferential treatment as a student, I guess, because I was like identified as talented and I worked so hard. Yeah, yeah. And your ability to understand yourself and what you needed really stuck out to me. Like throughout your career, you've always wanted to challenge yourself. Like in 2011, when you knew you needed onstage experience Mm -hmm. and you kind of pivoted a little bit your career to make sure you got that experience. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Like how did you know what you needed and you had the self-awareness to push yourself in that direction. With ballet, it's a fine line between having the confidence to get out there on stage and feel awesome and give a compelling performance, but then also being able to question yourself and have a realistic self-appraisal of what you need to work on. And so I think definitely still now I deal with that, but especially earlier in my career, I would just be like, uh when are they going to realize that I'm just like not that talented? (laughs) And then also thinking I really want to be doing more, like I want to do lead roles and I want to take on more. So I think I just realized that I, I had no experience with acting on stage really. And so many of the roles that we do, like Giselle, Romeo and Juliet, or Juliet and Romeo and Juliet, they're really dramatic. And so you have to have the confidence to embody the character. So I started working with an acting coach and that actually has 
been, I think, like one of the best investments I've ever made. I just learned a bunch of techniques and I felt like that was a turning point for me where I went from just sort of letting my nerves take over on stage to being really in control of my performances. I love that word control because I feel like in the sport, there's such a desire for control, but then like lack of it. Right. (laughs) Totally. There's a lot that can go wrong. (laughs) It's just so hard to do even the best dancers in the world struggle with a lot of technical things that you're just expected to do on stage can you talk a little bit about how mental health and self-care has been a topic that is in pop culture Mm -hmm. in general yeah and your industry your sport your Mm -hmm. art I can't think of a sport maybe gymnastics or figure skating that's Mm -hmm. like as critical but I would say ballet is like the most critical it really is How do you deal with that? I know. How do you stay sane and healthy? I know. It's a tough question. I think I definitely am fortunate because genetically, I think I have like a pretty natural ballet body. (laughs) So I'm really lucky. I didn't have to fight against like a lot of things that I think maybe other dancers have had to fight against. But there were definitely really tough things when I was in school. Like I had one teacher who was really hardcore and she would say things like, your neck is really short, like it's too short for ballet. And you really can't afford to gain any weight because then your breasts get too big and then your neck looks even shorter. (laughs) And And you're like 16. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So yeah, stuff like that definitely gives you some complexes. <laughs> it's tough because ballet is an aesthetic art form. And if I'm going to buy a ticket to go to the theater, I want to see something really exceptional on stage. I think it's just finding a balance of health and well-being and being in your top physical shape, mm. which I think takes time. And I don't think teenage years are necessarily the appropriate time to be <laughs> talking to kids like that. Were there other struggles that you had to overcome? I would say mainly just my own insecurities and confidence, not just with my performing and dancing, but also I think one thing dancers are very ill-equipped for is being able to um, speak to authority figures and being able to have a voice and an opinion about where you want your career to go. I mean, because ballet comes out of the French court. It's like this very hierarchical art form. And I remember when I joined ABT, I was 18. And the thought of having a conversation with my director just like paralyzed me. I would literally be trembling when I had to talk to him. I mean, I was also 18. But I mean, my director is like probably one of the nicest bosses you can have. He's totally democratic and gracious and kind. So it wasn't anything he was doing that made me feel that way. It was just in ballet, you're not used, you're not trained to like have an opinion, I guess. And it's a beautiful thing to have that sort of discipline and deference to people who are older and wiser. But then I do wish I would have felt a little more empowered when I did have to have those like tough conversations with my boss, just like in any field, you should be able to speak up for yourself. I always had these coaches who had been these really incredible ballerinas in their day who just like took me under wing and they would tell me like you need to go and have it speak up for yourself. I don't see ballet as being supportive to women Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's good to know that there are women who are out there like supporting and mentoring definitely each other. You'd be surprised at actually how supportive it is within the company like I have 
friends who are ballerinas and they're my rocks, you know, it's actually extremely supportive. And Isabella noted that there's a distinct double standard when it comes to a male and female dancer. The notion that boys will be boys is very much enacted in various ways, which is pretty disappointing. But there were so many instances where because there were fewer boys in the school, they were just given preferential treatment. They could get away with so much like the girls had to be perfect all the time. And when the guys messed up, it was like charming and endearing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. When the young women mess up, it's like life or death. Your identity. Yeah. I was thinking about, well, there's a dancer that I've worked with who's very well known and he's garnered this title, the bad boy of ballet. That's Sergei Palunin. He's widely known as a ballet prodigy and the greatest dancer of his generation. He got his name, the bad boy of ballet, for his temperament and for his drug use and hard partying. He shocked the dance world in 2012 when he quit the Royal Ballet at age 21. That's just two years after becoming its youngest ever principal dancer. He recently came out as a Putin supporter, and you can see his tattoo of the Russian president's face on his chest on his Instagram. And um, I just think if a woman had behaved how he had a ballerina, she would just be called trash and no one would hire her for anything. (laughs) So... Yeah, I think that's something that still needs to change. It's not just in ballet, it's every field. It's pretty intense and it affects, I think, girls and women in more ways than you would think on the surface. It's so funny because I was thinking, I did a show in Russia last week and I was like unpacking my tiara, which was a gift from Susan Jaffe, one of my mentors. She was Baryshnikov's protege and she was like a great American ballerina and she's the dean at North Carolina School of the Arts now. But she gave me this tiara as a gift for my first Swan Lake, my debut. If you look at it, it's like so sparkly and girly and it looks princessy and precious. But what it represents to me is like blood, sweat and tears. (laughs) I don't know. I guess ballet is complex because it's both an art and a sport. It's athletic. I mean, there's no doubt that ballet dancers are among the best athletes in the world. It is so hard. I train for what, like nine hours a day, and then I'll still get out there in Swan Lake and feel like I have to push through a crazy amount of burn. So it's a real athletic, virtuosic feat. There has to be like that extra element of being expressive and transcendent and making it look effortless. And looking good while doing it. And looking good while doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but Mm. I think that's In anything that you were pursuing that you really cared about, you were going to have to face a lot of disappointments and hear the word no. And I think just like maintaining that grit and perseverance is really, I think, ultimately what sets apart the most successful people. So, okay, good. (laughs) You're so grounded and like like seem like you have such a healthy self-esteem which is so hard Thanks. to do I know I think my honestly I think my parents just did a good job like making me and my brother feel like loved and supported from a young age and I think that's really all it comes down to I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joan and Isabella this was one of my most favorite episodes I'd love to hear from you though did you skate were you a gymnast are you a ballerina now I would love to hear your opinions about perfection in sports. 
I'm at Pop Cult Pirate on Twitter and at Pop Culture Pirate on Instagram. And make sure you use the hashtag SOLH. This is the last episode for this season, and we're uncertain about the future of the podcast, but I would really love to keep in touch with you all. If you want to partner or just like, you know, chat, hit me up at strongopinionsloosely-held at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Annie Taylor and edited by Ricky Alvarez for Refinery29. Meg Weck was our researcher, and we recorded with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.